Welcome to Beyond the Ivory Tower, Conversations on Journalism, with Sandra Banyats and Phoebe Maris. Hi, I'm Sandra. And my name is Phoebe. And you are listening to Beyond the Ivory Tower, Conversations on Journalism, a podcast series where we want to talk about current research in journalism. And today we are talking about emotions. emotions. And cats, they're not usually known for their love of swimming, but one feline in Northern Virginia is hitting the water instead of the gym in an effort to lose weight. Holly is a 13-year-old cat who dislikes the outdoors and other physical activities. But with encouragement from her owner and weekly visits to the Old Town Pet Resort. <laughs> Stay with us, everybody. Trump administration officials have been sending babies and other young children. Oh. <laughs> to at least three... Oh. Three tender age shelters in South Texas. Please do not even start with me that you're just going to attack sources. Okay, so, that what is about, so are you saying McMaster is lying? You're embarrassing yourself. So to tell us more about the role of emotions in journalism, we talked to Karen Wall Jurgensen, who's a professor at the Cardiff University in the UK. And last month she attended the Korea Journalism Studies section conference at our university, the University of Vienna, where she gave a keynote on exactly that topic. And we had the chance to talk with her afterwards. And in this episode, you hear her speak about emotions and journalism in general and the role of certain emotions in political discourse. My name is Karen Wall Jorgensen and I'm a professor in the Cardiff School of Journalism, Media and Culture. I actually did my PhD on letters to the editor in newspapers and I, specifically what I did my work on was how the news workers involved with letters, who worked with letters to the editor in selecting them and editing them, how do they make decisions about which letters to include and um, how do they think about what constitutes a good letter, what constitutes a bad letter and so on. And, and in doing so I was really informed by these ideals about what um, good public debate should look like. So very informed by the theories of Habermas and the public sphere, and then this idea of rationality in public debate, that public debate should be rational and informed. And uh, what I found was that when I did interviews with letters editors, they expressed this allegiance to these great ideals around rationality and deliberation, very similar to the kind of thing that Habermas uh, would like. But when I observed the work that they actually did, and when I asked them more specific questions to identify their favorite letters, these were always letters that were very personal and often very emotional. So um, they were often ones that kind of dramatized some kind of ongoing news event. So for example, a story might be about the fact that a local bookshop was closing down. Um, and then the letters that they really liked um, that related to that story were people's personal recollections of, let's say, going to that bookshop with their daughter every day on the way back from school. And they would pick up a book and they would sit in a cafe and they would have a 
nice hot drink and talk about the book and talk to people in the community and that the fact that this bookshop was closing was actually also closing down the community life so it was a way of drawing on these personal and emotional stories as um, to actually uh, provide some kind of context and texture to these big abstract events and small events happening in the community and so that made me think that actually Uh, emotion tends to be quite neglected as something we think about when we think about what makes for good journalism. So emotions in journalism is something that she explored to some extent in her PhD thesis, but then recognized that this is something worthwhile exploring in more depth. That was something I wrote about to some extent in my in my PhD originally, but then um, subsequently um, I continue to return to those kinds of questions again and again and over a long period of time I did work on journalism and citizenship so I did work on things like vox pop interviews so what uh, how do journalists use vox pop interviews in broadcast journalism and there also found that it was very much about drawing on personal experience as a way of concretizing Uh, stories about everything from, let's say, health healthcare to public transportation. Um, and so that was sort of a big theme. Um, and, and I then um, started to read award-winning journalism, so journalism that wins a Pulitzer Prize, just because I thought it's nice to see what good journalism actually really looks like. And it struck me that that form of journalism is also intensely emotional, often by drawing on, on these stories of, of ordinary people who are caught up in these, uh, in these stories. When we think of journalism, we think about people who go out of their way to dismiss the role of emotion in their work. But what Karen found was that journalists relied on the personal and emotional stories of their sources to actually create powerful journalism. So what do we as researchers do when we come across something that goes against the grain of what we assume to be, for example, journalism? To deal with that, Karen went back to existing concepts in journalism research and tried to make sense of her findings. And so that actually led me to do a more systematic study of award-winning journalism and of how award-winning journalism mobilizes emotion. And I made this argument that um, you can see evidence of, of what I call a strategic ritual of emotionality in award-winning journalism. And, and that's when I developed that concept that drew on the work of an American sociologist called Gay Tuckman, who in the 1970s made this very influential argument that there's a strategic ritual of objectivity in journalism, that journalists do certain things very routinely as a way of defending themselves from the risks of their profession um, by enacting objectivity through doing things like quoting other people so they remove themselves from the story um, and uh, by always providing information to back up their facts um, and, um, for instance, checking everything very, very um, thoroughly so that they basically ensure that they appear to be objective in their reporting. So I argued that you, you definitely see this evidence of the strategic ritual of objectivity at work in award-winning journalism, but alongside that you also see this strategic ritual of emotionality whereby 
journalists routinely draw on these very emotional stories as a way of dramatizing what might be otherwise a very dull and dry story, for example, about the globalization of the fishing industry um, or about um, uh, genetically uh, inherited diseases. So all these kinds of different topics were ones that were um, uh, told by means of individual stories um, and by means of, of using actually often quite emotional language in, in storytelling. And, and what's usually the case, I found, was that journalists don't talk about their own emotions, but rather they outsource emotional labor in the sense that they get their sources to talk about how they feel. Um, and then in that way, they remain objective, the journalists remain objective, but the stories are infused with emotion through those means. So that was the sort of first uh, major piece of work that I did that looked at emotion. And I've then turned to looking at how it circulates through public discourse in a variety uh, of different ways. So, so that's basically my, been my journey um, in terms of looking at emotion. Basically to say um, that it's been a kind of elephant in the room. It's been this kind of thing that we all know it's there, but we don't talk about it because we have in journalism studies as well as broader arts and humanities and social sciences disciplines, we've had this strong historical allegiance to notions of liberal democracy, which have tended to emphasize rationality um, over emotionality and has tended to view emotion as a polar opposite of reason and as potentially being very dangerous and dis destructive to democracy. And um, so that's sort of um, generated an epistemological blind spot where we haven't been able to see the work that emotions actually do for, for better and for worse. When we think of emotions, we normally think of certain emotions as being positive or good and others as being negative or bad. But Karin argues that we need to challenge these normative ideals around emotion. Basically, what I argue in my book is, first of all, that we historically haven't paid sufficient attention to emotion. And then secondly, if we start looking for it, it's actually everywhere. Um, and that part what, of what it means to take emotion seriously is to look at a range of different emotions and the varied ways in which they circulate through public discourse and also, uh, in, a, in a sense, the range of different responses that they elicit. So that, you know, we can't say that expressing love is always a positive thing normatively and equally expressing anger is always a bad thing normatively. Um, but rather we have to, to do a more nuanced analysis. And so in my book, I have I do have one chapter on love, on people who love politicians. And I also have two chapters that look at anger. Most of us would probably agree that anger can be something scary. But Karen saw value in exploring this particular emotion from different perspectives to see, can there be a positive side to anger? And the reason why... Um, I'm so interested in anger is that for me it is an essential political emotion and I, I should say I'm not the only one who takes anger very seriously so this is 
been a theme in the work of uh, sociologists of emotion, particularly uh, those who have been interested in social movements, because what they have pointed out is that, you know, historically we've been very afraid of anger. Anger has been seen as this particularly dangerous emotion because it's something that leads groups of people to be aggressive and potentially violent. And therefore, it is an emotion that needs to be carefully managed and controlled. And again, you know, we've, we've seen sort of sociologists like Norbert Elias writing, writing about how historically we've had different mechanisms for controlling aggression and anger so that, for instance, organized sports like boxing matches is one way of doing so. So that a lot of the history of civilization is essentially the history of managing emotions and very much about managing anger and aggression. But nonetheless, what research has also found is that actually a lot of what motivates us to participate in political life and a lot of what engages us is about emotion and particularly about anger, anger being very important. And anger is important because, you know, we, we can feel angry about something as an individual and that anger might not necessarily be particularly empowering, but if we join with others who are angry about the same thing, then that becomes potentially empowering because if we're able to collectively discuss our anger, if we're able to make the personal political as, as feminist scholars or feminist uh, activists would, would have it, then we can make claims to justice and, and claim for social change. And so for me, it's particularly interesting to look at anger for that reason, because I think it's one of those emotions which forms the basis for collective claims to justice. So anger can be a powerful emotion for political participation or to trigger change. But what is the role of media in all of this? How does the media draw on anger to legitimize claims for change? And for me, it's particularly powerful to look at in the context of media coverage because I see anger as it circulates media coverage as, as being something very distinctive because it is something that um, is already public when it circulates in the media. Um, it is um, an emotion which is usually collective when you see it in the media and usually one that is political and oriented towards particular forms of political change. You've got no idea why we're striking. Then, like, what on earth? You must be utter idiots if you're wondering why we're striking. That makes it very important to look at how do media discourses draw on anger and what are the ways in which anger becomes politicized and becomes the, uh, the basis for claims to justice. So, um, in a sense, um, when people are angry about something, um, then there's usually a kind of legitimate reason for them to be angry. So, for example, I wrote a book a few years ago with um, colleagues of mine, Mary Panti and Simon Cuddle, which looked at disasters in the media. And uh, Mary Panti and I wrote a chapter there about anger in disaster coverage. And what we looked at specifically was how when you are the victim or when you are affected by a disaster, 
then you, in a way, you have an entitlement to speak out about how you're angry. So, for example, when the Sichuan earthquake happened in 2008, um, there were multiple school collapses where schools had been badly constructed and then they collapsed in this earthquake and hundreds of children died in various different villages. And then the parents came out and spoke about the poor construction standards. And that was really one of the first times that... Um, Chinese citizens were placed in a position where they could make those kinds of claims. Um, so, um, so for me, therefore, um, anger is something that is particularly interesting and particularly complicated as a political emotion. But it's not only groups that call for social change that use anger to legitimize their claims. No, anger is also frequently used by bigger political players these days. In my book, one of the things that I look at is specifically the role of anger um, in terms of shaping public debate around the presidency of Donald Trump. And what, what I argue in my book is that we can see um, the rise of Donald Trump as evidence of a shift in what the historian William Reddy has talked about as an emotional regime. And when he talks about the notion of an emotional regime, he, he suggests that each particular historical period has a particular set of ways of talking about emotions, a particular kinds of dominant emotion words um, that prevail within a particular moment and serve to actually define forms of political action. And what I argue is that the media, that journalism constitutes one way of enacting and maintaining this dominant emotional regime. And so um, one of the things that I explored was how there's been a shift from a more positive kind of emotional regime, like for instance with Barack Obama being associated with hope, to one of anger. And specifically what uh, my research suggests is that the ways in which Trump is being understood um, is very premised on the idea that he is an essentially angry man. By the way, I don't like this mic. Whoever the hell brought this mic system, don't be the son of a to put it in, I'll tell you. These people. No, this mic is terrible. This stupid mic keeps popping. Do you hear that, George? Don't pay him. And in a sense, he kind of performs anger on the part of citizens on the part of those who voted for him. Um, and indeed, a lot of uh, observers have suggested that the rise of Trump is linked to forms of anger. So uh, the economist and Pettifor, she's talked about how you could see Trump's rise as being in part explained by economic anger, by people feeling left out by the waves of globalization. And political scientists, uh, Fred Engelhard and Pippa Norris, they talk um, about how there's been a sort of cultural backlash um, that has led to support for Trump, where people uh, feel deprived of certain forms of privilege and they feel angry about the ways in which they've been deprived of privilege in the time of multiculturalism and gender equality and therefore voted for Trump. So Trump kind of performs the anger of the people and anger becomes a key interpretive framework for understanding his presidency. But who decides what is and isn't legitimate anger then? 
Yeah, and when we think about media discourse, does the political orientation of certain media dictate how they frame different political actors and their anger? But what I'm also arguing is that actually anger um, and a notion of angry populism is not only helpful for understanding Trump himself, but also for understanding how the um, feelings and the opinions of his supporters and also his opponents are being constructed in media discourse. So that his supporters are also being described as being angry, um, and they're angry for a particular set of systemic reasons um, where you could see what's going on at the moment as a coalescence of longer-standing economic, cultural, uh, political trends. But also that opponents, those protesting against Donald Trump, also appear to be united by anger. And what, what's been particularly interesting to me in following um, the coverage of Trump and the coverage of, of anger in particular has been that the anger of opponents against Trump is kind of seen as being legitimate. People who are angry about Trump are constructed as being angry for legitimate reasons. They're angry because they believe that the president is sexist and xenophobic and dangerous for the country. And um, when the anger of opponents against Trump is being described in media coverage, it's very much in terms of how you know, they actually have legitimate reasons for being angry. So that kind of points to the complexity of anger as a political emotion, that it's, it is a tool and a strategic and political tool for populists like Donald Trump, but it's also a tool um, for those who support him, who are able to find a voice for the first time, and for his opponents who use that anger as a basis for political action. What adds more complexity to the issue is looking at emotion through the gendered lens, where female politicians on the one hand will either be framed as too emotional or not emotional enough, while male politicians are rarely expected to be emotional. Or are they? Yeah, so in criticizing Trump, the media treats him like a female politician would be treated, where emotion is seen as a sign of irrational hysteria? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, uh, normative expectations of the performance of emotion are deeply gendered. And I, so, so I think it's absolutely right that um, there are these expectations of, of candidates like Hillary Clinton that on the one hand, she can't be over emotional because then she would be hysterical. But on the other hand, if she doesn't show herself in touch with her emotions, then she's not behaving like a quote-unquote proper woman. Um, and I also think that um, actually there are deeply gendered expectations of the performance of anger in particular, and so that it's much more acceptable for men to perform anger than it is for women. Um, I do think that that is somewhat changing now, where... And increasingly, you, you, for instance, you see opponents against Trump, uh, women being angry about him and that being an acceptable form of anger. So I think that on the one hand, we see very gendered expectations. But on the other hand, what, what's also important to note is that these kind of normative expectations 
around the performance of emotion are dynamic and they're always subject to change. And I think right now they are changing. And to my mind, they are changing against the backdrop of a growing role for, of, of anger as a kind of key political emotion that's acceptable to perform in public. There were so many questions we could have asked Karen on this topic, but at some point, unfortunately, we had to wrap it up. So we ended by asking our usual question. What she thinks are some exciting issues to tackle in future journalism research? Um, well, I obviously think that further research on a variety of emotions and how they circulate Uh, through the various components of the communication process is, is really essential. But, but I think but more generally, uh, one of the areas that has historically been relatively underdeveloped in journalism studies research, but that we're now um, seeing a huge growth in is, is uh, research on the audience and audiences of journalism. And I think that there's evidence to suggest that particularly uh, younger generations of journalism studies researchers are now actually taking the audience incredibly seriously. And for me, that's a really productive and a really welcome turn um, in terms of actually moving the field forward. I think we've been too focused on studying journalists and studying texts. And there's very good reasons why that's the case, both methodological and kind of pragmatic and political ones. But nonetheless, I think it's increasingly urgent to understand the audience. And I can see that's actually uh, where the field is going and going in a very productive way. So that was it. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. And if you want to know more about Karen's work, you can go to the Cardiff University webpage. And if you'd like to know more about our research, you can find us at the Journalism Study Center at the University of Vienna. And our website is journalismstudies.univ.ac.at. There you can also find information on the rest of our team, which has been changed up a bit. So we have Daniel Nölleke and Michael Marbacher, led by Volker Hanusch, and also our contact details if you'd like to get in touch. We hope you'll be around for our next podcast where we speak with Chrissy Dagula from the University of Groningen on public spheres in digital spaces. The music you heard today is from Blue Dot Sessions. Also, we want to thank Lisa Kiesenhofer again for lending us her beautiful voice and Radio Campus for lending us their equipment. My name is Sandra and I'm Phoebe. Bye. Bye. Bye.